Hello, good people. This is Sister Julia Walsh, and you're listening to Messy Jesus Business. Welcome to The Mess. I'm here with Dorothy Fortenberry, who is a playwright, screenwriter, and essayist. Her plays include Partners, The Lotus Paradox, Species Native to California, Good Egg, Caitlin and the Swan, Status Update, and Mamun. As a television writer and producer, she has worked on Extrapolations, The Hundred, and The Handmaid's Tale, for which she received multiple Emmy nominations, the PGA Award, and two WGA Awards. She also writes essays for publications including Commonweal, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and Real Simple. And uh, she's a pretty amazing Catholic, <laughs> if I can just say that. Dorothy, welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Wow, thank you. Um, trying, trying out here. <laughs> yeah, sounds realistic. I do the best I can. Yeah, sounds good. Um, yeah, and uh, which I didn't read in your description is that you received the Hunt Prize for journalism and arts and letters. And I never really congratulated you. That was a few years back. Thank I feel you. Like- yeah, that was 2021. So only one year back. It's just that time no longer has meaning. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I got to give a speech and I got to write for America about climate change. I was very honored to get the award. And then I got a chance to just like run my mouth about some stuff, which is always fun for me. I know. And I love that piece in America. So it's really cool. You and I have been friends for, I don't know, it feels like lots of years, but I suppose it's just a few by now. <laughs> like you said, time is all warpy. Obviously you're, you know, thinking about your, all the things you're involved in, in the creative world. It seems to me you have really come into your vocation of being a creative as a person who works with words and with narratives. How did you come to know of your vocation as a writer and as an artist? Um, you know, it took, it took a little while. In all honesty, when I was like 11, 12, like sort of middle school age, I really wanted to be a priest because I I loved listening to someone talk about the word, right? Like, and I was like, oh, there's a captive audience. (laughs) You just get up and you get to like, talk about language and story and meaning and you're a part of it but also there's all the other people who have thought about this particular passage you know over time that you can bring up if you want to and it seemed like a super cool job and then I found out that I could not do that job so I had to look for something else but I already knew what I liked which was thinking about language thinking about story thinking about how people talk to each other I started writing probably around the same time so like 11 12 writing plays writing stories But I didn't really know anybody who was a creative writer. So the idea of doing it as a career didn't really occur to me just because I didn't know people. Like I was seeing a priest regularly. So like (laughs) priest is like a thing you could do. It's like, ah, yes, that's a person in my neighborhood. But there was not like a novelist in my life. And so I didn't think of it. Even I would say through high school and college, I kept writing. I took writing classes. One of the amazing things about being a playwright is that you can see people hear you, Mm. you know, you can stand in the back of the theater and watch people watch what you made Mm. and 
that's really incredible because it's happening in real time and it's hard to fake an immediate visceral response. So if something isn't working, like, you know it. And someone could say later, like, oh, it's great. And you're like, mm, it was not great. <laughs> I saw it. I saw you watch it. But if something does work, if, you know, a joke lands or a moment hits or a surprise happens, you can sort of feel everybody gasp or laugh. And I really loved that. I really loved knowing that my writing was affecting people. But I still didn't know if I wanted to do it. Um, it's It seemed risky. It seemed scary. It seemed less stable than other jobs. And I think I really kind of decided I was going to give it a shot. I spent the year after college living in Haiti and volunteering with formerly homeless youth. I wrote just these incredibly long emails home to everybody. And I wrote in journals and I realized over the course of that year, I was like, this is the part of this that I am really connecting to is writing these long emails and trying to describe this experience and trying to describe what I'm going through, what other people are going through. And I think this is the thing I want to keep pursuing. Mm -hmm. So when I came back, I did other things, but I, I had sort of made a commitment to myself that I was going to try to be a writer. It seems that you have excelled. <laughs> Congratulations. It went okay. Thank you. Yeah, it's going pretty good. Okay. <laughs> and along the way, you also fell into your vocation of motherhood and being a wife, right? So there's this dance of being a creative person and living in a family and being human and being part of the church that, that you're doing. And I'm wondering if you want to sort of talk about how you embrace or balance the complexities of the wholeness of vocation? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's, that's something that I figure out a different relationship to and a different balance on every single day. You know, no day looks like any other day. So it's not like it's something that I've got sort of fully sorted. I will say for me, I knew I wanted to be a mom. I knew I wanted to have kids my whole life. I was lucky enough to meet my husband pretty young. And when we decided to to start our family, my writing career was pretty new. You know, <laughs> I, I had not done any television writing. I had had some plays at smaller places, but I was sort of like, I kept coming in like first runner up at a bunch of places. Mm. And, and I was taking this sort of leap that it would all work out. And I wasn't sure that it would. I definitely didn't feel comfortable or safe or settled, but I also knew that I just, it was important to me. And I had, I think a sense of faith that I wanted to try it. And I do think one of the things I got out of being a part of a church community was that people would just be really excited that I was having a baby kind of regardless of everything else. <laughs> I think there were a lot of other people who would be like, wait, but like, what are you doing? And that's crazy. And the church was a place where people were just like, yay, you're having mm -hmm. like, sure, everything's hard and you don't know what you're doing, but, but we're excited for it and we're happy for it. So that felt really lucky and I felt great, grateful for that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think, you know, at its best, it's something that always pulls me back to an immediate reality. Mm -hmm. So no matter if I was at some 
fancy thing last night, I still have to wake up and change somebody's diaper. And it <laughs> just brings you back to like, you know, the realities of the world. It keeps you from getting a sense of yourself that's overly inflated. And conversely, when things are going hard and I find out, oh, this project I worked on for years isn't happening. And mm. like, oh, this thing I was really excited about, I didn't get there's still somebody who needs their apple cut into slices and there's something to go do. So mm. it, it very much pulls me out of myself in either a sort of thinking I'm so great or thinking I'm so terrible kind of mm. way. Cause I just, there's a constant array of tasks to be done and, and ways to be with other people. And that is very good for me, I think, to not fall into either of those two traps. Mm, I think what I'm hearing is this way that being in relationship and being of service and loving your family, it really helps you to embody yourself and not fall into the dualism of, of like, because this whole creative project, I just been putting all my energy died. I am now dying. Exactly. Exactly. Like, it makes, it makes you something other than your work. Um, yeah. And, and that is really useful. And I think it's, it's really valuable and I, I love my work and I feel grateful for it and I work really hard at it, but it and I are not the same person. Yeah. And and I think also for my kids, I love them and I work really hard, you know, to try to take care of them. But mm. they and I are not the same people, yeah. that, that they're their own people, too. It keeps me from overly identifying with either one, being able to do both. Mm-hmm. So I want to switch topics a little bit and talk about one of the parts of you that I find the most fascinating and a lot of people probably do, which is you being a Catholic in Hollywood, <laughs> right? And yeah, and, and, and it's, I think I will say that's fascinating for me because w- growing up in Iowa on, on a little farm, California might as well have been like China. It was like, <laughs> you know, Hollywood is like, like, you know, it's such a foreign land. Yeah, being a person of faith in that world I, I, I don't want to make any assumptions, but it seems to me like it must be a very interesting experience. So what is that like? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's unusual. I will say people have really been very tolerant of me and kind and respectful. I think it's not a normal thing if I'm talking about my weekend and I'm like, oh, and then we went to church that is weird. You know, that is not, not a lot of people in the room necessarily went to church. Some people grew up in a religious context, but often don't currently practice. Although sometimes people do. It's a little bit quirky, but I feel like people have really given me the space to be myself and have loved and embraced me fully, um, which is something that I feel really grateful for. I feel like whatever ideas they might have about religion or Catholicism in general, I feel like I've tried to be somebody who embodies it in a way that isn't off-putting or mm-hmm. <laughs> or alarming, but I also am pretty open about it. I, like I, I will always say to people that I'm working with, you know, here are the boundaries of my time. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to answer my phone on a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Like I'm just, I'm going to turn it off and I'm just not going to answer it. So please don't 
you know, even if something is really important, like you can find me Sunday afternoon, but like, I'm, I'm not going to be around for that. Mm. And like, that's not a great day for me to schedule work on, you know, if I have, if there are religious holidays, you know, and like, Hey, I'm going to come into the office, but I'm going to have stuff on my forehead and I'm not going to be eating (laughs) and it's going to be fine. (laughs) Heads up. Please don't tell me that like, I got a little something like I I know, I know it it was put there on purpose Yeah, yeah. and I might be like a little crabby. I feel a little bit like an ambassador sometimes. Mm. I feel like I might be the only practicing Catholic that somebody knows. Mm. So I feel like I have a responsibility to try to show it as a joyful, chill thing as best I can. And then I also feel like there are people for whom I'm, I'm the only screenwriter that they know. Yeah. So I feel like I also have a chance to kind of model that in a way that is hopefully also joyful and chill. I do think you know, when it comes to telling stories about religion, my boss uh, on The Handmaid's Tale, when he was putting together the writer's room, you know, for the early seasons of that show, there was a real array of religious experience in that room. And I think that was something he did on purpose. It's about a theocracy. And there really were all kinds of perspectives. So there were people who, you know, grew up in a faith and are still practicing the faith. There are people who grew up in the faith and were like, you know, never again. That was a nightmare. There were people who had converted. There were people who had family who, you know, were of interfaith or multi-faith families. And there were people who were very, you know, had never been raised in the faith and were sort of multi-generation atheists. There were people who were spiritual but didn't have a religious tradition anything you could think of we had in that room and I think that diversity really helped us when we came to telling the story because we had different points of view and responses and thoughts and feelings and I think that is something that only helps make the story better is to have lots of people who come from lots of different places listening to each other. Yeah, yeah. The the thread here that I'm hearing that feels worth highlighting is how you really are a bridge in all these different worlds. And, you know, your voice, your perspective, your presence, your experiences, like your identities matter in all the spaces you're in. If you're showing up fully and you're embodying them, it's actually an offering that enhances the project of whatever the project is, whether it's church or <laughs> or creative writing. So it's, I think, an encouragement for folks like myself who sometimes can get very trapped and lost in a sense of like, oh, I'm only in this one world and I don't know how to interact with people outside of this world that I'm in. But yet we're called to be ourselves in every world that we're in. And in doing that, we're offering something sacred and holy that helps people become more true. Yeah, I think the more that I can think about things and how I react to them genuinely in the fullness of how I understand myself and my faith, that can bring something to something else, whether or not. I reference that in the conversation. Yeah. Right. 
so so there have been times in like I'll be in a writer's room and someone will say something and they'll be like oh what if this thing happened in this episode and I'll be like ah <laughs> like we could have that but like we can't have the episode seem to be supporting that like that's terrible like like you know a character can do something monstrous but like I, I wouldn't want the show to mm. communicate like yay monstrosity how are we showing <laughs> awful things without celebrating them right mm. and so sometimes I will have a reaction to things um, that other people will not find monstrous like I'll be like oh no that thing is terrible people will be like no that thing was great and I will sometimes interrogate myself and be like well, why did I think that was terrible like what what is it about it and I will realize that there is a often a religious reason why I'm like oh that's why this thing is really rubbing me the wrong way and really striking me as not okay that is not an argument that will be persuasive in the context of my work. Mm-hmm. Like if I come in and I'm like, oh, but there's an encyclical that says <laughs> like, don't do that. Like it will, <laughs> that will not sway anyone um, to changing the idea. So it's, it's my job to figure out how do I understand my own response? Does my own response mean that my I'm wrong that it should be on television, that I'm just having a personal individual response and that it's actually fine in the show. Mm. If I still think it's a problem for the show, if I still think the show could make a different, better choice, what is the language that I can communicate to the show Mm. to advocate for my position? And even if my impulse is coming from a place of spirituality and coming from a place of a, a moral valence that I'm getting from church, it's not necessarily going to be persuasive to explain it in those terms. So what are the terms that I can use to actually like, who am I talking to and how do I talk to them in a way that makes ideas make sense and doesn't feel like I'm shutting things down or cutting things off or, you know, breaking things. Yeah. I admire that so much. (laughs) Thank you. I can learn so much from you. You mentioned climate change briefly, and I'd love to to go there and, and also kind of talk about the intersectionality of climate change and children. I've heard people argue that people shouldn't be having babies anymore, right? Because yeah. overpopulation is a cause for climate change. And we're Catholics, and we believe, yeah. <laughs> we believe no. in the sacredness of humanity. So what... How do you grapple with this tension? And how does that show up in your creative work? Um, I mean, right now it shows up in the fact that I keep meaning to write an op-ed and not writing it, which is called, if you're worried about climate change, have a kid. If you're really worried, have two. Mm. Because I feel like (laughs) I want to shift the way we think about it because I think you're very right. I think there is a very powerful feeling right now that not having children is an effective anti-climate change measure. That is something that I can't compute. That bothers me so much. And I know that it's, you know, largely from a religious place. You know, if people don't want to have children, oh my gosh, don't have kids. Like I, I would never tell somebody to have children if they didn't feel like that was their vocation. But if you are a person who feels called to have children, likes being around children, is excited to have children, would love to welcome into your family, and then climate change is the thing that's stopping you, that feels to me like a tragedy. It feels like a real horrible loss and a real failure of the sort of Western world climate messaging climate movement. Mm. Like I, I feel like there is a, a thread of, of sort of anti-humanity 
in the way that certain strands of the climate activism universe look at it that really bothers me. Mm. It's one of the reasons why I go around like handing out copies of Let Out O.C. Um, to people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a huge evangelist for it. Um, Wait, and one of the just just to clarify, are you literally like walking down the streets of Hollywood? I mean, I am not literally walking, the streets, <laughs> but I do. I I have handed it out to people in Hollywood. Very, I does ha- that has happened more than once, and I do bring it up all the time. when talking about climate change um, because I think it is one of the very few documents that is anti-climate change and pro-people that sees people as beloved children of God, that sees people as wonderful and doesn't shy away from all of the terrible decisions that people have made and all of the oppressive systems that people have created and all of the brutal extractive policies that we have, have done. Like it, it, it isn't rose colored about those things, but it doesn't take it to a place of, and therefore the solution is no humanity. Mm. And I think that's really important to resist as a conclusion. I think it's really short-sighted because I think it implies that we know exactly what the future is going to be. I think that it's really narcissistic because it implies that, you know, our personal control as individuals moving away from humanity, as opposed to our personal decisions moving towards each other in finding greater connection. I have written things about children and climate change. I have not written specifically on this issue of not having kids around climate change. This is tricky because I feel like discussions around children and reproduction are really fraught and I don't ever want to feel like I'm telling people what they should do with their bodies Mm. because that feels like it gets into territory that I'm uncomfortable doing but I think if anybody wants to have kids I think it is a beautiful and wonderful thing and if they are excited about that I hate the idea that the climate movement would be something that stood in their way. It's not that climate change isn't a huge existential threat. It is. But we have also responded to other existential threats in history. And I think there are going to be people in the future and they are going to experience joy. And we cannot know what those experiences are. But I don't think it's for us to foreclose the possibility. But I do. I think about this all the time. And what what in your view then are the ways to shift from that space of despair to a space of hope and actually like increase the connections in the human collective, right? We have the capabilities and the technology and the experience to be able to shift away from a carbon dependent economy. Mm. There are big factors making that unlikely, but there are also big factors making that likely. The last five years, there's been an incredible explosion, both in terms of technology and in terms of political action that have made it more likely that we won't get there more quickly. And I think you can look around at a lot of things and feel deeply sad about unnecessary suffering and deeply sad about lost potential and deeply sad about unjust systems. But I don't think there's a case for total despair. I think you can just sort of go like, wow, this is all very sad. 
but there are also people trying to make big and small changes away from it. Mm. And I think to me, climate activism and moving into a post-carbon future really can be a space for joy and possibility. Mm. And I think that is something that I really want to think about is what are futures where we're making them together? You know, that's not to minimize the loss, but the loss we're we're turning a dial and everything that we do to turn the dial down to a lower global temperature rise is a win and there are these little tiny (laughs) segments on the dial but the differences are actually mammoth the difference between you know a 2.1 centigrade rise and a 2.7 centigrade rise are millions of refugees and so if we think of ourselves as like, we're all just going like, to really push, mm-hmm. it's not that we're going to prevent anything bad from happening, but we could really positively impact the lives of millions of people. And species and, yeah. And species yeah. and, and yeah. kelp and, yeah. you know, <laughs> right. all the things. Yeah, yeah. I like that framing of it because it, for me, feels very parallel with, the ordinariness of being, you know, like we were talking about earlier, being a creative person or doing family work, like there's so many things that are complex and hard and heavy. We need to feel the feelings and yeah, we need to pray with our loss and our sadness and our grief and the disappointments of like, man, that project didn't go or man, I have to rewrite this whole book or whatever. Also, we can't let the shadows have more power than the light. And the shadows and the light are both there together. And so, I mean, that is ultimately the Paschal mystery. We move through the pain and the suffering and we, we arrive at redemption together. It's helpful for me to also... especially when you feel it we feel it in our bodies I think lately totally and and there is there is genuine grief I mean I also think this is a thing about what church can provide is it can provide a space for climate grief and it can provide a space for climate prayer and I think sadness around climate change can feel very lonely Um, I know that there are a lot of statistics that a lot of people feel it but don't sort of know where to put it. Um, And so it becomes a really private emotion. And I think, I mean, I feel very grateful that prayers for the environment, prayers for creation are a part of prayers of the faithful at my church. And so that feels like, oh, we're all doing this together. Like we all together are trying to do this. I think a lot about climate change in sort of a, a faith and works context where the individual choices you make to, you know, recycle your soup can or whatever, it's individual, it's like personally praying, it's doing something small and personal. And then you also have a responsibility to vote and know what various candidates are doing and participate in a greater civic thing. If you only stay home and recycle, that's not enough. But also, if you participate civically, but then don't take care of your own stuff, then you're kind of falling out of balance. So how do you hold both of these things where you have private personal behaviors that remind you of what's important, and then you use those to spur you into collective community action? Mm. I love how you're describing it as acts of prayer. Yeah, I mean, I do. I think recycling is prayer. Like, I really do. And in the same way that also sometimes you're like, really? Like, is this doing any good? Like, I'm washing the soup can. I'm like, 
I don't know. Like, <laughs> right, right. Where, I don't know. I don't know where it goes. I don't really know. Like, I hope that it goes to a recycling center, <laughs> but I'm kind of just trusting. Yeah, yeah. Like, it might end up somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, so I do. I yeah. very much think that recycling is prayer. Yeah, it's such. So we, I mean, my goodness, it is. It's totally parallel. <laughs> like, <laughs> and you just you offer it up though. You're like, but. But I'm going to take the, yeah. the chime. I'm going to rinse out the soup can. I'm going to put it in the thing. Yeah. And I just, I just got to believe that yeah. it's going to the place <laughs> that I think it's going. Yeah. Oh, so much work is prayer. So I'm interested. How does prayer influence your creative work? Oh, man. Um, I don't. I mean, it must. It's not something that I have thought about a ton I will say I went through a practice a couple of years ago where I was just spending way, 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 way too much time online and way too much time on Twitter. (laughs) And so for Lent, every time I would reach for my phone to look at Twitter, I would get, try to get my rosary instead. And I was like, okay, we're going to try to do like a one for one substitution because they both can live in your purse and you can just take one out. And so I would find myself in like airports waiting to board a flight and be like, okay, this is exactly when you would normally look at Twitter. Okay, what if you instead did this? I'm sure that had some impact on my creative work, but I don't know. I don't know what it is. Mm. I don't have like a clear one-to-one for it. I asked this question because it's something I'm very curious about as a, a Catholic sister who's doing creative work and is interested in spirituality and accompanying people so much in their spiritual journeys. And I think I've grown into my identity as a creative person too. For me, it's actually a fruit of my prayer. Mm. I started blogging podcasting, writing essays, publishing, all the things I've been doing along the way. Because in my relationship with God, I have felt these pushes. It's not just for you. Like, you need to share it now. And then when I sit down and it's like I'm at the blank page or it's a mess of edits ahead of me and it's a storm of confusion, I feel like the only way I know how to navigate through that is through my heart, not through my head. Yeah. And it's like okay, God and I are making this thing together. I mean, I was not trained in this. (laughs) I'm learning as I go here, which is, I mean, that's discipleship, actually. So, so like, I mean, maybe you have this experience, too, and you start writing, you're like, oh, I think it's going to go in this direction, and something else happens that's so amazing and surprising and better and beautiful, and you're like, oh, I didn't even know I was capable of that. And then you're like, wait a minute, at least for myself. Actually, that wasn't me. That was that. That was totally, totally the spirit doing something here. Yeah, and I do think being open to those sort of moments of surprise, those moments where something captures you, it's a tricky state to try to create. Mm. I I feel that also. Like there are times when I sit down to write something and I don't even know what it's going to be, and then it starts kind of coming, and it doesn't feel totally like I'm in control of it. It doesn't feel like something that I, I'm in charge of. It feels like something is just showing up and I'm lucky enough to be the one who caught it and so then I'm there to to pass it along I mean I feel like I'll also say for prayer I I tried at one point doing the examine and I feel like as a person who tends to have high anxiety it absolutely strung me out because I was like oh my gosh I'm just going over my day and like 
all I can do is think about everything I did wrong. And I was like, I don't think this is how this prayer is supposed to go, but it's making me bananas. (laughs) So I, I feel like finding ways to feel like prayer can be a support. So sort of navigating my own issues around it. But Mm. I think that state of being receptive really feels hard, but lucky, you know, when you can have those things where like you are taking a shower and then you're like, oh, I know, like, that's not the beginning, that's the end. Mm. And so what are the ways to at least be ready in case Mm. those moments of insight, those moments of something else coming to you can find you? Mm. Mm. They may not show up, but how do you be ready for them if they do show up? Yeah. In the spiritual life, we're required to surrender, to not appropriate, you know, to detach again and again and again, which is also required in the creative life. And I mean, a name for God is creator. So I do believe that one of the ways we get to know God is by creating and, (laughs) and, and the creative energy is usually of God. So I'm thinking too about one of the lessons you taught me years ago. (laughs) I remember a phone conversation we once had about a project of mine and, and how I was just really confused about what direction to take. And you talked to me about baby turtles. Do you remember that? Yeah. Do you, want to, <laughs> do you want to share that for the listeners? Yeah, I don't know if this is applicable to places that aren't Hollywood. This is something I think about to help me get through, you know, all the projects of mine that don't end up happening. You know, so many turtle eggs get laid on the beach. And of those, only a small percentage hatch. And then of the ones that hatch, they try to crawl to the ocean, but things are trying to grab them and eat them. And then of the ones that make it to the ocean, only some of them grow up. And that when you're working on television projects, I always am like, look, like it's my job to try to get, you know, this baby turtle to the ocean to be a full adult turtle. But it it's probably not going to, <laughs> you know, there, there are lots of forces, whether that's it doesn't sell or it sells, but it doesn't get made or it sells and they shoot the pilot, but they don't make the pilot, but you know, it, um, they don't pick up the series or it sells, you know, they shoot the pilot, they pick it up to series, but they cast it and have directors and and, and it ends up going in a direction that's not at all the thing you thought. So you're mm-hmm. like, oh, there's my thing, but it's the opposite of what I wanted. You know, there's so many ways it can go off track. You know, I feel like it helps me try to have, to hold things a little bit less tightly. Mm. So to care about them deeply and to believe in their possibility, but also when things don't work out to be like, yeah, you know, this is how it goes and there will be others. And I got to just keep sort of throwing things out there in the hopes that something will land. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense for, for the world of television and movies and such. But like, I, I, for me, Dorothy, it's totally parallel to the life of ministry and, you know, and so the, just actually for me living a vowed life, like what each of the vows are is like, I can't love any one person too much that I cling to them or anything too much or be so attached to my own will and ideas that I'm not being obedient to what the spirit's inviting me to or communities inviting me to. So it's totally transferable and, and like, oh, 
My goodness, if I were to think about the creative work of ministry and showing up and listening and accompanying people and sometimes just trying to be a light or to share some good or be with them in their sorrow, it is a lot like sitting with a bunch of babies that are just hatching from their eggs and you just don't (laughs) know know. what's going to happen. And I don't get to come back and check most of the time. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm just a visitor. (laughs) Just a guest on people's holy grounds. That reminds me, this is a little bit different. You know, you were talking about sort of motherhood and creativity and something that I got out of early parenthood. I'm not great at being present. That's not like a super amazing skill of mine. Um, But there is something about those sort of very early days where you're just sort of trying to be with your kid where there's not a timetable. I would sort of realize I was really rushing through like putting my baby's clothes on or changing diaper or doing something. And I was like, to get to where? Like where is <laughs> like where are we going? Like we're not going. Like we're just gonna be in this room over there. Mm. So okay. So so my job isn't to do this as quickly as possible. Mm. My job is just to be here with my kid. And if this takes five minutes or this takes 30 minutes uh they're all just minutes that I'm being with somebody and going through that there's a way that I I have held on to that and so there are times that I'm with somebody and I find myself wanting to sort of make a schedule or think about what comes next or try to make a plan especially as a freelance creative person like there's a lot of juggling and a lot of different projects needing different things in different ways and it has helped to sort of slow down and be like, maybe what this moment needs is just being here for this moment. And I, I am not in a rush to get anywhere. And I, I can't know the result. I can't know what happens next. I just kind of have to be here and hang out. I'm just thinking of all these like lines from scripture, but for, mostly I think it's Ram Das who's like, be here now, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I take huge comfort from this is a day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and yeah. be glad. And I try to say it on the most garbagey days <laughs> to just be like, this also is a day that the Lord, some, for some reason, the Lord made this day too. Yeah. And all right, these are all just days and mm. you, you get to be in them. How do you find a way to be in this day? Not denying all the garbagey stuff that's going on and how hard it is, but just to be like, this is a day. You, you got a day. Okay. Yeah. 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 Amen. <laughs> right. So Dorothy, what's discipleship for you? Oh man, I think I think it feels like listening. I think it feels like praying for the church. I think there are things that I love about church and there are things about church that I have a really hard time with. I think being a part of any community that's a billion people is really challenging. I'm a serial exaggerator. And at one point, one of my kids asked me how many Catholics there were in the world. And I was like, oh, there's a billion. And my husband actually had to stop and be like, okay, so she usually says a billion when she means like 10. But like, in this case, there actually are (laughs) literally a billion. She's not just (laughs) exaggerating. And I think I think discipleship for me is like trying to figure out how to be a member of a billion person group. Mm. What is that 
what is my role? How do I keep showing up for the people in my immediate circle, in my immediate family, in my, you know, family of of friends and loved ones? And then how do I try to show up in a way at at church and in my relationship with the whole church, you know, that supposes that it's an institution that's going to keep existing and and how does it exist in ways that supports the best of what people are and can serve them it it feels really challenging sometimes sometimes discipleship for me means looking at the biggest failures my best friend has spent years doing research on the sex abuse crisis mm-hmm. and being with her on that journey and looking at all the things that she has learned about and paying attention to them is really hard but that feels like being a disciple it feels like okay this is this is part of what's going on this is part of the history this is part of the present I can't sweep that under the rug I can't not know that that happened um I have to pay attention to it it means trying to listen to people who I disagree with with an open mind and an open heart mm-hmm. even when that's hard mm-hmm. and trying to sort of see if there are places of commonality or places of connection I think that's part of what I was aiming for when I wrote about climate change for America was sort of saying like there are so many things we can agree and disagree about but we do all live on this world and we all are going to be affected not in equal ways but we all will be affected by climate change and can we find common ways to look at this And my hope, I guess this is my hope and my prayer, is if we can understand ourselves as all sharing this common earth, and if we can understand ourselves as all being faced with this threat of climate change that we all have to take seriously and take each other seriously, can the act of doing that give us the grace and compassion to address other issues in a less divisive, in a less cruel, you know, without defensiveness without vindictiveness without judgment can we learn from this one project how to maybe understand each other as shared participants in this project of you know being on an earth together Mm. yeah oh my goodness well thank you so much dorothy for coming on messy jesus business of course i would like you to to share with the listeners how they can support you in your work Oh my gosh. Well, thank you. Um, so Extrapolations is the most recent TV show I worked on, which is the first sort of big budget TV experience about climate change. I was lucky enough to get to work on I was a co-showrunner. It's a series on Apple TV Plus. It will be out this spring. 2023? 2023. Okay. So please watch it. It is a future and we very much want people to imagine lots of different futures the idea of extrapolations is that you're pulling together possibilities from current trends you know you can extrapolate some things one way but they could also be extrapolated another so i really hope that it sparks discussion and i hope that it sparks imagination as people think about different possible ways our futures could go and if you want to have kids, have kids. That's my only major uh, other thing that I would say to anybody listening. Is if that is something that is you feel called to in your heart and you're excited by, um, please do. Kids are great.
Amen. <laughs> Thanks, Dorothy. Of course. Thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced and edited by Colin Wamscans. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.